Is that better? Oh. Testing, one, two, three, four, five, six. No. Green light is on. Are the battery were the batteries changed this morning? I picked it up. Before, were they actually changed? Oh. So there it is. Oops, there it is. Okay. Well, I got one thumb up. That's good. <laughs> Listen, we're in Romans chapter 8 this morning, uh, verse 28. How many of you memorized Romans eight twenty-eight in your life sometime? It's one of those verses, isn't it, that we've all memorized? Or uh, if not, you probably will or should anyway if you haven't. But it, it's one that uh, speaks to us this morning. Let me, instead of plucking it out of the middle of Romans 8, let me read it starting at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose." For those whom he foreknew, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestinated, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would bring us to know Jesus more as we come to the Word. We pray, Father, you'd open our hearts to understand this passage that is so rich in encouragement and such a blessing and such a gift to your church. Open our hearts, open our eyes, open our understanding, and yes, our wills to you in Christ's name. Amen. You know, one of the things our kids liked whenever we went to a Chinese restaurant was the fortune cookies at the end. I got the bill and they got the fortune cookies. And at the end of the meal, uh, they would crack open the uh, fortune cookie, you know, the crisp little moon-shaped cookies, and uh, eagerly read their fortune. Usually it was a pithy little statement, uh, sometimes humorous, an attempt at being inspirational, uh, that would uh, bring good luck to you. For example, one would read, the early bird gets the worm, but the second mouse gets the cheese. You got to think about that one. Many go to Scripture as if it was a fortune cookie. I believe many go to Romans eight twenty eight and pick it up and pluck it out of the Bible as if they had a fortune cookie in their hand. They're going to crack open and read it, where it's going to tell us a lucky statement that all things are going to work together for good. Uh, one of those fortune cookies is Romans eight twenty eight. I don't know how many of you have picked it out of Scripture and plucked it out of Scripture and read it that way. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purposes. And because it's isolated from the other texts, 
other words, because it's taken out of the middle of the book of Romans by itself, uh, we can cherish it to be a, a message of good luck to us. Many love this verse. It's printed on plaques. It's sold, it used to be sold in Christian bookstores, now online. It's on magnets on your refrigerator. It's in uh, commercial sympathy cards you might send to someone who lost a loved one. But here's the problem. One of the most magnificent verses in all of God's Word is being misused and misapplied from what God intended it to be. What is missed is the glorious truth that this verse proclaims. It's not a good luck charm. Some of the ways this verse is typically misunderstood or misused. All things in my life are going to work together for good. All the negative things in my life are going to be flipped over and they're all going to become positive. And the things that are really bad now are going, to, are going to go away and it's going to be even better than it was before. That's typically the way many would interpret this verse. You know, it's like you, you wake up one morning and, and God becomes aware that now, now He's up and, and there's a roll of the dice of how you're going to live your life this day. Either you're going to be seven come eleven or it's going to be snake eyes, whatever happens. But God's going to be watching and when God watches, He's quick to, like a superhero, He's quick to jump in and, and, and make things turn around for the good. Tragedy uh, tragically uh, randomly happened and God dramatically shows up and changes everything and makes it right. So if you lose your job, for example, no, no problem, right? Romans 8.28, all things going to work together for good. I'm going to get a better job. God took that job away, but I'm going to get a better job. And uh, usually it means, don't worry, things are going to get better in this life. Now, this understanding that's so common today robs this verse of all the the gusto, all, all the glory, all the majesty that God intended when He wrote this particular verse. And the problem is that the understanding robs this verse of all of its glory. It becomes man-centered rather than God-centered. Misunderstanding comes from cherry-picking this verse right out of the middle of chapter 8. And this is what happens when you cherry-pick. When you take a verse you like, oh, this is such a nice ring to it, pull it out, no context before, no context after. And now here it is, you're, you're, you're taking it, you're, you're wrapping yourself into it without any consideration of context. But what I want you to see this morning is this. I want you to see how glorious and how magnificent Romans 8.28 truly is. And you're going to find it hopefully encouraging in your Christian life. If you're going to do that, we must be careful that we, we don't cherry pick it, that we see where this fits into the broader argument that Paul's making here in Romans chapter 8. I want you to see how it connects with the two verses right before Romans 8, 28, 26 and 27. And then I want you to see that it's vitally connected to what comes right after Romans 8, 28, which is 29 and 30. Remember where we were last week in 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself, He intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. 
And so there we see that, that Paul's talking about life's going to be tough for the believer. Uh, Christianity 101, you're going to have a bumpy ride between the time God saves you until he calls you into heaven. It's going to be full of potholes. There's cliffs to fall off. There's injury. I mean, life is going to be difficult. Get ready. And so, but, but notice this, when, you, when it gets to the point, and it's so, so difficult that you don't even know how to pray for yourself, and so all you can do is groan, the Spirit of God hears you who lives inside of you, and not only does He hear you, what does He do? He intercedes on your behalf before God the Father. And whatever He is pleading before the Father, the Father is hearing Him, and the Father is going to do it, because the two are what? They're one. So that leaves open the question. How is the Father can answer prayers of the Holy Spirit? What prayer is, going to, is He going to answer when, in fact, the Spirit intercedes on your behalf? In other words, when life's trials are dark and, and, and you lose any sense of what's up and what's down, what's right, what's wrong, you don't even know how to pray, I don't even see how whatever I'm going through can in any way be used for my spiritual good. You come to verse 28, and listen, we made a big deal about this all the way through Romans. We're going to make a big deal about it again. It's the first words that he chooses to use at the beginning of most sentences, and here we see it begins with the word what? Verse 28, and, ah, we have a connection. That, that should go off in our head. We have a connection. Paul's going to connect whatever he's saying in verse 28 with what he just said in 26 and 27. And then, let's skip down, let's look below Romans 8, 28. Let's go to 29 and 30, right below it. And so we, we look at the first word in 29 is what? Four. Oh, what does four do? It connects us right back to verse 28. So whatever verse 28 means, it's directly connected to the first two verses before and it's directly connected to the verses after it. You cannot cherry-pick that out of the middle of the book of Romans and make it say whatever you want to say. For those whom He foreknew, those whom He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom He predestinated, He also called, and those He called, He also <coughs> justified, and those whom He justified, He also glorified. And what that tells us is this. Whatever Romans 8.28 means, it's a lot loftier than God's going to take you out of your problems and make things better for you. He's talking about something on a whole different other plane. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about being conformed to the image of God. He's talking about heaven, glorification, sanctification. And as I was reading through this this week the thought came to me. There are those who come to verse 29 and 30 and they get all bent out of shape because God is describing Himself as a sovereign God in the salvation of man. You can't get away from it in 28 and 29. And if you wiggle your way out of that one, you got chapter 9 coming up. So they grit their teeth. They grind their teeth at the idea of a sovereign God in the salvation of man not realizing that it points right back to verse 28 that they love so much. They hate 28 and 29, I mean, or 29 and 30, but they love 28. And the reason why they love 28 is so much is because they misapply it to mean that God's going to do whatever they want Him to do to make their life better. 
But he's saying exactly the same thing in 28 as he is in 29 and 30. We're going to see that this morning. Notice how he opens up the verse with, and we know. I mean, last week when perplexities and sufferings come into our Christian life, we don't know what to say. We don't know what to say. We, we, we're confused. We can't even pray. He's saying right on the heels of that. But we do know, see, in the midst of suffering, we do know this. And here is something that every Christian in this room should know, embrace, understand, and apply in your Christian life. Here's something you're called to know. And I think to the degree that you know this, and understand it, and apply it, you're going to have hope, and you're going to have encouragement, and you're going to have a Christian life overflowing with true joy. Let's look at the promise first. He brings us a promise. The promise that you you know well. For all things work together for good. There's the promise. That's an amazing promise of, of God. And if we're going to know this promise, we and understand this promise, we have to to first of all break it down. We're going to see it's a promise and who the promise is made to. We're going to look at the people. We have to ask ourselves this question. You look at the, what are the all things? Paul, what do you mean by all things work together for good? And then secondly, what, what, what do you mean by good? What do you mean good? What kind of good? All things in life work together for good. What are the all things? Well, since we know this is connected to 26 and 27, we can get some insight there that there he's talking about suffering. So somehow our sufferings can be used, are part of the all things that come into our life, that God is working together for good. Your trials, your persecutions. You know, in Ephesians 1.11 it says, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestinated according to the purpose of Him, who works all things. There it is again. According to the purpose of Him who works all things to the counsel of His will. And there He's talking about the inheritance, the the salvation we have in Christ. He's working all things of your life. All things according to the counsel of His will. Verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And now He's going to give us a list. Put this in your all things. Tribulation, Distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. For as it is written, for your sake we are being killed. So put death in there as well. All the day long we regard as sheep to be slaughtered. Persecution, verse 37. No, in all things, all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Uh, and then he tells us there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. I can't wait until we get to that passage. All things, I, you know, I'm not, this doesn't sound very theological, but Paul means all things equals all things. I mean, it's, it's, that's all, that simple. Everything that happens in your life, all things are the all things that happen in your life. Trials, sickness, mercies, deaths, blessings, accidents. Loss of jobs, calamity, persecution, everything that happens to you, God is working it out for good. Now, who is, the, who is He making all things work together for good? Who is that? 
The things themselves don't work themselves out for good. He's not talking about a form of evolution where, so you get all this mess of life, and all these things themselves are working themselves all out for your good. So there's something acting upon these things. What are they? Well, Paul isn't describing some evolutionary process of working problems out and them working themselves out, no. Now, just not to get too wonky about this passage, but actually there's a textual problem in this verse. And that's why if we took the time this morning and I went and asked all of you, you know, what translation of the Bible are you using? Depending on your translation of the Bible, you're going to have a different, a different translation or understanding of verse, verse 28 because in the original there is a textual variant. And uh, so, for example, I'll just quickly, if you have the NIV or the NASB, uh, there they're, they're following a manuscript that would say that uh, they put the word God in there. It is God who's working all things together. The, the name God's right at the beginning of the verse. Now, Luther, you know, he scratched his head on this, and he took the view that implied here was, was not God the Father, but God the Holy Spirit. And so what he did is he linked it back to verses 26 and 27, where it says the Spirit is interceding on your behalf, and... and He's also working everything out for your good. So he links those two, two thoughts together. You know, I really think the better view, and I think some of you, most of your translations might read, the, the better view is, is there's a reference to God. God might not be mentioned in your translation, but He is implied by the use of the, uh, the male pronoun. But uh, God the Father, God the Father, is the one who's working all things out for good. Even though it doesn't say that, it's definitely strongly implied by, by the word order. The idea is it's that sovereign God who the Holy Spirit is praying to, who is working all things out in your life for your good, for, for His purpose. Not your purpose, but for His purpose. You know, and I was thinking, ah, give me what's an illustration we could use? And I was thinking, well... How about one of these really fancy Swiss clocks, you know? And, and so all you can see is the face of the clock, and it's going around and keeping time, and, and that, that's your world of reality. But if you look behind the back of it and you open the door up, you would see gears and all kinds of mechanisms all intertwined and working together. And it's all working together in a way to make that clock just perfectly go around and keep time. And so what, what this, this verse is saying, that behind the scenes of your life, behind the events of your life, you can only see the events. God is working all these things out in a way for your good, according to His purpose. What is the good? What is the good He's working out? Does that mean He's going to make them all go away and He's going to take the eraser out on the whiteboard and just erase all the, the bad things that are going on in your life? No, it doesn't necessarily mean that. It might. It's not what the context teaches here. The answer is found in verse 29 and 30. There you find what the good is that he's working out through all the things in your life. And there's two things that are in 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestinated. And here's the first one to be conformed to the image of His Son. 
That's one of the goods that he's doing in the life of every believer is that through all your trials, through all your events of life, he's working them out to conform you to the image of his son, to be Christ-like. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 30, and those whom he did predestinate, he also called, and those he called, he justified, those whom he justified. Here's the second one, he also glorified. And there's the ultimate purpose in, in, in working all things out in your life that you might be one day glorified in the presence of Christ forever. Glorified bodies. In short, if you want to use one word, what is the good? It's working the full salvation in your life of God. All events. All things work together for your sanctification, for your glorification, for your salvation. And say, well, who does this promise for? I mean, does this go out to everybody? Is this carte blanche? Is this general public he's talking to here? Is this promise open to everybody in this room? Is it to the whole world? Anyone who can name it and claim it, is, is, is that who this promise is for? Everyone without exception? No, he limits who, he's, who this promise is made to. He says it's to those who love God. Paul here is describing really Christians. It's another way of saying a believer. A believer is one who loves God. Paul used this language, this, this picture, in about four verses in the New Testament where he's describing a person to be a true believer as one who loves God. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, But as it is written, the eye is not seen nor the ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love Him. Ah, who's that? Those are the believers that are in Christ. 1 Corinthians 8.3, But if any man love God, the same is known of him. It doesn't mean he knows who you are and where you live. It simply means that uh, he knows you intimately and he loves you intimately. You're saved. You're a Christian. Verse, 1 Corinthians 16.22, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema or let him be accursed. So if you don't love God, you're, you're under the curse of God. You're not a Christian. So those who love Him, are, the only reason they love Him is because He first loved them. And He gave them a new birth. And the new birth gave them a new heart. And the new heart gave them a new spirit to dwell in them. And the fruit of the Spirit is love. And, and one of the marks of every true Christian is you love God. You're not a Christian if you don't love God. I mean, you cry out, Daddy, Abba, Father. I mean, He's changed your heart. And secondly, He's writing this to those who are called according to His purpose. That's another way of, of saying Christians. Now, what does He mean by those who are called, in verse 28, according to His purpose? Well, to there we go down to verse 30 again. And to those whom He justified, He also glorified. Uh, he called them. Well, first of all, let me go back to 30. Those whom He predestinated, predestined to be called, He also called, and whom He called, He also justified. So it's the same calling that's mentioned in verse 28 as is mentioned in 30. Would you agree to that? And those two being the same calling, we see the calling here is a calling that leads to being justified, having faith in God, being saved. So again, it, it, it's a calling that shows one who's a Christian. Those whom He called to be justified, they will be justified. 
Now, we have a fancy word for that. We call that effectual calling. An effectual calling is the working of God through the Holy Spirit and the Word itself that, that does a work in your heart that draws you, calls you, produces faith in you. And when you hear the call to come to Christ, what do you do? You come. You don't come dragging or kicking and screaming. You come willingly to Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. You know, a good example of this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. For Jews demand a sign, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ a stumbling block to the Jews. So there is a calling, like right now, today, the, during this message, I'm giving a general call today to anyone here without Christ to come to Christ and be saved. And it well could be that you hear that call, okay, God, God's calling me to become a Christian. And so we say, amen, we're done, and we all stand up, and you walk out the door just like you came in the door without faith, without belief, and not being a Christian. And that happens all the time. You know, it used to be that Billy Graham would get up and preach to 50,000 people, and, and maybe 30,000, 40,000 would get up and walk out in unbelief. They heard the call. But that's not the call that talk, he's talking about here because this call we see in verse 30 is a call that leads to being justified. Means, it leads to faith, it leads to believing in Christ, and ultimately it leads to glorification. And so in Romans 4, 17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom you, you believe, who gives life, listen to this, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And so he calls into existence faith in you and you believe. That's that powerful call of God. Uh, if I didn't believe in that, I wouldn't be standing behind this pulpit. If I believe it was up to me to somehow persuade you or to do anything in your Christian life outside the power of Almighty God Himself and the Holy Spirit, this would be an absolute 45-minute exercise in futility. But I believe in the, in the effectual calling of God that when the gospel goes out, when it's faithfully preached, the Spirit of God takes that message, He applies it to the heart, He brings conviction of sin, He brings faith into the heart, and a person believes in Christ, and they become, become a Christian. It's a wonderful, wonderful blessing. If you want a picture of this, think of uh, Lazarus uh, in the tomb. We talked about in Sunday school this morning, uh, Jesus weeping at the death of Lazarus. So here he is. I mean, he's been dead a few days. He's wrapped up in clothes. He's inside this tomb. Jesus is there. He's sad. There's a sadness upon Christ because his, his dear friend Lazarus is dead. And what does he do? He says, Lazarus, to a dead person, Lazarus, come forth. And so what did Lazarus do? He came forth. He was alive. That's what an effectual calling does. It brings life. In the area of salvation, it brings salvation. And here Paul's describing those who are effectually called to Christ and to faith will be glorified. In short, those who are called are those who are Christians. So let's back up. God's working everything out in, in your life. If you're a believer, He's working all the things out in your life for your good. And your good is what? to become more like Christ, to be Christ-like, and to be glorified one day and see Him face to face. That's the good that He's working out through all the events of your life. 
What's his purpose? Well, I don't know. He says, according to his purpose. Obviously, his purpose is probably to glorify him. You see, Romans 8.28 was never intended to be a spiritual fortune cookie. Do you see that? This isn't a cookie that you just break open and you think, well, wait a minute. All things are going to work out together for me and my life and for my good and whatever trouble I'm going through, God's going to make it better. That is not what this verse means. Wipe that out of your, of your mind totally. This, might, this means that if you're a Christian, you love God, you've been called according to His purpose, this verse is saying that He's working all things out for your good. And that good is that you're becoming more like Christ, and the good is that one day you'll be glorified and be with Him. That's what Paul is teaching us here in Romans 8, 28. This is not a good luck charm. It's more glorious than that. It's more encouraging than that. It's more majestic than that. Promises that God is making all things work together for your spiritual good. Now, I'm not saying God can't reverse other things. He can give you a better job. He can heal you. He can do all these other things. But that is not the intent or the understanding of this verse. He is taking all the events of your life and working them for your salvation and your sanctification and your glorification. So if you're here today and you're a believer in Christ, and probably many of you are, and you stopped and you looked at Romans 8.28, just look at and, and consider this verse in light of your story, in light of your testimony, in light of how God brought you to faith in Christ, and just see the wonder of how He did that. You're looking behind the clock now. You're looking at all the mechanisms and all the gears and everything, and, and you're figuring out how God, God did this. But, I mean, it's not like one day you parachuted down and were a believer. He was arranging the events of your life in such a unique and wonderful and complex way to bring you to a point of salvation. Now, if I ask you to look over your shoulder and, and, and think of some things that He did to save you, maybe you'll come up with four or five, maybe ten things. But, you know, even at that, we're selling God so short of what He did to bring you to Himself. Because I think we need to be thinking in terms of the tens of thousands of things He has done in your life to bring you to the point of trusting in Him as your Savior and Lord and ultimately bring you into glorification. He's saying all things here. So we've got to look at every event of your life. You know, it's, it, it's complex. In fact, I, you probably never know all the things He did to bring you to faith in Christ in your life. The thousands upon 10,000 things that He did. Let me give you an example. Let's say you're raised in a Christian home. Now, some of you, that's your testimony. Not only are you a Christian today, but by God's grace, He birthed you and put you in a Christian home. What a blessing that was. Think of all the events that had to happen for mom to get saved. Think of all the events that had to happen for dad to get saved. They've got their own testimony. Now, that has to be all worked out. It's you coming to that family and coming to faith in Christ. So that's, that's complex. And then not only that, mom and dad had to meet each other. And mom and dad had to get married. And mom and dad had to orchestrate all kinds of events so that what? They would get married, we won't go into a lot of detail, that you would be born. 
more events, right? And so, and then you think of all the events that he used in your particular life, the people he brought into your life, the events, the sickness, the job. Who knows all the events? Think of a God who's orchestrating all these things in such a way to save one soul. That is a glorious truth that comes from Romans 8, 28. Do you realize that all things God did for you were for your good spiritually? It's amazing. God works accidents. God works out illnesses. God works out relocations. God works out military service, education, schools, tragedy, jobs, war, peace, death. I mean, the list goes on and on. All the events that come into your life, and he's in charge of all of them, and he's working them out like that Swiss clock for good. And he's doing it all together, not just for you and you, but he's doing it for all his people. That's an amazing God. And that's only the beginning. That's just bringing you to faith in Christ. Now he's doing all things in your life as a Christian now, doing all things for your good to make you more and more and more like Jesus Christ. The list is even bigger there. I mean, all the events. So I want to close by giving you two or three illustrations of this that help you see the, just the wonder of this, this verse. Uh, the one is the conversion of Charles Spurgeon. Uh, how, how this is a wonderful picture of, of Romans 8.28. You know, Charles Spurgeon was, was born in a Christian family. So now we got all the workings of mom becoming a Christian, dad becoming a Christian, all the events, mom and dad coming together, getting married, having, having children. Charles comes along. So all those events he's working out. But on the day that he decides to save uh, Spurgeon, a big snowstorm blasts through England. And uh, it, it, it was a brutal sm- snowstorm. I'm sure people weren't happy. Uh, so Spurgeon, a young teenager, he goes off to, to, to church on Sunday, and it's so bad he can't make it to his normal church, so he ends up walking into a little primitive Baptist, or excuse me, a primitive Methodist church uh, that was just on the way, and he's, I'll go here. Well, what's God doing? Working all things in his life out for good, including a what? Snowstorm. And so here he is, there's 15 people in church that Sunday. Small attendance, most are shut out. Pastor couldn't make it. He, he snowed out. So they're all looking at each other. Who's going to preach this Sunday? There's 15 of us. Well, this skinny man in the front row, he, let's let him get up and preach. So the skinny guy in the front row gets up and he preaches. But he doesn't have a sermon. He hasn't prepared a sermon. But what's God doing? He's working all things together out for good. He's going to do something good that day. And so this, this man who goes up, he stands behind the pulpit. He doesn't have a sermon prepared. He knew that he recently read from Isaiah 45, so maybe he just read what he read. So he opened his Bible. And he said, everybody turn your Bibles to Isaiah 45, verse 22. And he read to the 15 people, including Spurgeon, he says, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. Why did he choose that verse? Because God was working all things together out for good on that particular day. 
And that included the selection of that passage that would be read, not preached, but read. And he turned to the congregation and he said, this is his message, look, if you ever get called to stand up and preach, just remember this verse. Here, here's the sermon outline for you. Look unto me. Look to Christ. Look to Jesus dying on the cross. Look to Jesus dead and buried. Look to Jesus being raised victoriously from the grave. Look to Jesus at the right hand of the Father. I mean, this was not a prepared sermon. This is spontaneous. This is ejaculatory preaching. And what was God doing? He's working all things together out for good. And then he looked at that, that, that man sitting there by the name of Charles Spurgeon, a young teenager. And he zeroed right in on him. He knew he was a visitor. Young man, he says, look, 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 look and live. And he says, like arrows were going in him. What was God doing? Working all things out for good. Spurgeon writes, he says, I thought I could have sprung from my seat in which I sat and, I, and, and was called with the wildest of those Methodist brethren. And they were really, they were, they were pretty spontaneous and they loved to worship enthusiastically God. I was forgiven. A monumental grace was brought to me, a sinner saved by blood. What was God doing? Working all things together for good. You know, I looked over my, my shoulder this last week and looked into my life and tried to recount some of the things that God brought together to save a sinner like myself. You know, it was the summer of 1970, and I'm a hippie driving across the country with a Volkswagen van, and I got flag curtains in the, in the van, and, you know, I was on the other side of the political spectrum in those days. And here I am in Lincoln, Nebraska, and my, my van breaks down, and the motor blows up. It's going to be three days for me to get the car fixed. What was God doing there? He was working all things together for my good. I didn't realize it. I found out later after my mom passed away. And by the way, God used that for me to meet my wife. And we're both, you know, she's from L.A., I'm from L.A., but we're, he intersected our lives for just a short time in Lincoln, Nebraska. That, that's God working all things out for good. Six weeks later, we were married. That's another story. God was still working all things out for good. But, you know, after my mom passed away, I, we found a little card, a little prayer card that she filled out way before we got married and, and way before we were saved. And she had my name down, started praying for my salvation, and the date she started praying for it. And then later after I was married, she wrote down Mary's name and prayed for her salvation and the date she began praying for it. And so what was God doing there in my mom's prayers? He was working all things together out for good, for our salvation. And then she later wrote the date that those prayers were answered. I remember when I was uh, I wanted to go to law school in, in uh, Tucson, Arizona. There's only one law school in Arizona. It took 100 students each year. And I had great LSAT scores. I had a pretty good GPA. But in those days, you know, the competition was such, affirmative action, all the things that were going on, you know, you had to be like Mr. Perfect to get into law school if you were a person like myself. 
So we got turned down. I was disappointed. Why in God? I wouldn't say God. Why in the world are, are, do we have to move? We got to go to Chicago to go to law school now. In the middle of winter, I was upset. Looking back, I realized what God was doing. He was working all things out together for good. Didn't seem like it at the time. Mary and I went to move to Chicago. And there, again, God was working all things together out for good. Mary starts saying, after seven years of marriage, hey, I think we ought to, I, I think we ought to uh, go to church. I said, are you out of your mind? This is our only day off. I mean, I got two jobs. I'm going to school full time. You're working. I mean, you know, we play tennis. We have fun. I mean, what? And she kept on me. She was strong. After seven years of marriage. And so I said yes. And it got to the point where we, I opened up the Chicago phone book. Again, this is God working all things out together for good. I opened it up, the Chicago phone book, and I didn't know a Baptist from a Buddhist. And I went, we're going to go to that church next Sunday. So God was directing a finger to land on a church because I didn't even know what the difference between one church and another. And God was working all things together out for good as I pointed to that church. And then through that church, you know, we went, and there's, that's another story. But then the pastor came and shared the gospel. And Mary and I were both saved that, that day when the pastor came out and shared with us the gospel of Jesus Christ. God was working all things together out for good. See, God not only works all things together for good for salvation, He also works all things together for good for your sanctification. Now, if you're a Christian, this is probably where you find yourself this morning. Uh, he does that. You say, why am I going through what I'm going? Why are all these things happening in my life? Why, God, why? Well, the answer is quite clear. Romans 8.28 says, because I'm working all things together for good in your life. I'm making you more like the Lord Jesus Christ. I am making you, uh, preparing you to be glorified. That's what I'm doing. I'll give you an illustration there. In 1967, a young teenage girl by the name of Johnny Erickson uh, went swimming. She was a believer at that time. She was a Christian. She was an active teenager. She loved horseback riding. She also loved swimming. That day, she jumped off the, off the rocks into a, into a lake, didn't realize it was as shallow as it was, broke her neck, spinal cord injury, Paralyzed from the neck down, the re- neck down the rest of her life. Uh, God was working all things together for good for Johnny Erickson. She was loved. She loved God, and she was called. For two years, she struggled in a rehabil- re- rehabilitation facility, and uh, boy, God was working all things together for good in the rehab. And she found herself crying out during that time. Why, God? Why, God? Why, God? And why is it I'm going to be in a wheelchair, can't use my hands, can't use my feet the rest of my life? I mean, her life seemed shipwrecked at that point, struggled with depression. Her own words are the best. I, I, I think I would, I don't want to paraphrase them. She says, I was numb emotionally, desperately alone, and so very, very frightened. What was God doing? Working all things together for her good. Most of the questions I asked in the early days of my paralysis were questions voiced out of a clenched fist and emotional release and an outburst of anger. 
Steve is a man who came to, to minister to her, a young man named Steve. I said to Steve, I, I, I just don't get it. I trusted God before my accident. I wasn't a bad person. This possibly couldn't be a punishment for any sin that I've done, can it? At least I hope not. I don't get it, Steve. If, if God is supposed to be all-loving and all-powerful, then how is it what has happened to me uh, be a demonstration of His love and power? Because, Steve, if He's all-powerful, then surely He should have been powerful enough to stop my accident from happening. If He's all-loving, then, then how in the world can a permanent and lifelong paralysis as part of his loving plan for, be part of His loving plan for my life? I don't get it. Unless I can find some answers, I, I don't see how this all-loving and all-powerful God is, is working anything in my life that brings confidence. Who's in control? Whose will is this anyway? And what was God doing in Johnny's life at that point? He was working all things together for good, her spiritual good. Not that she's going to get up and walk out of her wheelchair, but one day she will when she goes into glory and be, is with God forever. She later wrote this. She says, God used this injury to develop in me patience, endurance, tolerance, self-control, steadfastness, sensitivity, love, and joy. Those things didn't matter much to me when I had my feet. Boy, <laughs> It began to matter later, though, after I began to a life in a wheelchair. God was working all things together out for her good. Johnny also began looking forward to heaven. She was thinking of her glorification. In other words, this wheelchair helped me see the good things in this life aren't the best things. There are better things yet to come. The good things in this life are only Omens or foreshadowings of the most glorious, grand, great things to burst on the scene when we walk into the other side of eternity. I'm the lady with the broken neck. And at first I had the hardest time trusting in Romans 8.28. I couldn't imagine that the good that God was talking about there, that God wanted to do in my life, would ever, ever, ever outweigh the grief of my tears. The disappointment of losing the use of my arms and my legs, it was unthinkable. It was impossible. But you see, God enjoys doing impossible things. And so I began to hold fast to Romans 8.28. And as she held fast to Romans 8.28, she began to grow in her faith. She was strengthened in, in, in her resolve. The glory and the wonder of God began to shine brightly upon her. And she writes this, she says, as I pray, and this is what I would pray, oh Jesus, this is your promise, not mine, Romans 8, 28. You said that you can do this, so I'm going to take you at your word. I'm going to stop bad-mouthing my diving accident as though it were the worst thing that ever happened. I'm going to stop playing the victim. I'm going to be drawing on people's, and drawing on people's sympathies. I'm going to stop blaming you for ever even allowing my accident. Okay, no more complaining, God. Instead, I'm going to trust you that you have a purpose in mind. 
And I don't know fully what that purpose is, but I know it's not to make me better physically. Frankly, it's to make me a better person. I had finally come to the point of believing that God's idea of good, you know, using my disability to make me more like Jesus. Friend, I, I had to believe that that was more desirous than w walking. I had to desire the life of Christ in me more than having the use of my hands and the use, the use of my legs. Could I do it? Could I believe it? I decided yes to the glory of God, Romans 8, 28. That's how it works in our life. And that's her story. That, that's an extreme story. And I don't know what you're going through or what events you're going on in your life today. But these are the events that God has brought in your life and, and the master man, God is behind our scenes of our life and He's working all these things out like the clock to the glory of Himself and for your good. Paul never meant this to be a promise to flip the adversities of life and make things better this side of eternity. That's never the purpose of suffering, never the purpose of all the events. It's more glorious than that, more majestic. And for the Christian, for the one who loves God, the one who's effectually called, he promises to do this. So today, what's God doing in your life? I don't know what events are going on in your life. I know most of you, a lot of you have just a whole complex issue of problems, issues, events that, are, that you're dealing with as part of God's sovereign purpose for you. And have you reached a point as a believer that you're seeing that God is, is working those things out for your good, for your salvation, for your ultimate glorification? Whether it's a fractured marriage, a prodigal son or daughter that has gone off the rails, whether it's a tragic accident, the death of a loved one, the diagnosis that you receive that is terminal, I mean, I don't know what they are, but you have different ones than I do. But as believers, we all have events in our life, and we have to view those events as being worked out by God in such a way that it's going to make me more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have to believe that and act upon that, and ultimately to bring us into the very presence of God Himself. Encouraged last week to cry out to God and we can only groan and the Holy Spirit's interceding. But listen, the Father's answering. And He's saying, I, I understand. I'm going to answer it this way. I'm going to take all the events and work them out for the person to become more like Christ. Now, let me close by saying this. This promise that we just looked at in verse 28 is a promise that's made to those who love God to those who are called according to His purpose, this is a promise made, listen carefully, exclusively to who? Christians. That, that's how this promise, this isn't a carte blanche promise for everybody. This is a promise made for believers, those who have faith in Christ. Only believers, the events in their life are working together for their good. But, and I would have to say this verse is silent, but I would say the converse must be also true. That if you don't love God and you're not called according to His purpose and you're not a Christian, all the things in your life are not working together for your good. Would you agree with that? Then what are they working towards? 
They're working towards your eternal destruction. Because one day you're going to have to stand before God and give an account for this life, for all the events that took place. And you stand before Jesus Christ without any, any sense of understanding that I, I rejected God, I rejected His plan, I rejected the way to heaven, I rejected forgiveness. What can I expect to happen? Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. So we see that the sufferings of this life are going to lead to the greater sufferings in the life to come. But here's the good news. The good news is there is a Savior. His name is Jesus. He came into this world with a heart of love for a people. He came on a mission to die on a cross and to have the stakes driven into His hands and His feet. He knew the blood would drip from His body and pour out of His side, and He knew that He was atoning for and paying for the sins of those who He came to save. God commended His love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That was His purpose. And here's the good news. It well could be that all the events in your life, unbeliever, have been working together for your salvation, for your good. You won't know that until you trust in Christ and receive Him as your Savior and Lord. So I don't see being here this morning as an accident for anybody. I mean, if you're here today and you wonder, well, why am I in church on this Sunday? It's God's working all things together out for good for you and for what, some purpose in your life. So I call you this morning, if you're an unbeliever, to hear, heed the call of God in your life. The call of the Lord, if He was up here behind this pulpit, He would say what He said when He walked on the earth, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. And when you hear that with the power of the Holy Spirit, what do you do? Well, you pick up your cross, deny yourself, and you follow Christ. I would call you to do that today if you're without Him. Trust Him as your Savior and Lord. And it well could be, and this is my prayer as I close, that God has taken the events of your life and worked them out toward your ultimate salvation. May He be gracious to you. Let's pray. And so, Father in heaven, we close again with a prayer on our lips, realizing, Father, Your Word has gone forth and You promised it won't go forth empty. So we pray, God, that You would take Your Word and empower it with Your Spirit. Oh, Lord, if there's hard hearts that are here that are, that are contemptuous towards You, I pray You'd break them. If there's pride that seems so strong and insurmountable that no one will humbly come to you, I pray you'd break that. And make us like little children that simply come to their Creator and say, I believe in your Son. I trust in His work on the cross. Forgive me of my sins. Grace me with a gift of everlasting life. Oh, I know you delight in hearing such prayers. And those are the prayers you answer. And I pray you'd be gracious today in Jesus' name. Amen.